Our reading from the Hebrew Bible today comes from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Listen now to this word from God. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, Lo, this is our Lord, we have waited for him, so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Just a minute for a short pause. 
And one more. Ah, there we go. Yes, that is the one that fell out of my pocket when I first stood up. And evidently, when it hit the ground, it cut it off. These things often happen. I often say to folks when I'm leading worship, you can expect one thing to go wrong. So it's better that it happen early in the service. Now it's done, I hope. Um, but I am glad to be with you in this beautiful sanctuary. What a wonderful place to come on Sunday morning to worship the Lord. On behalf of Savannah Presbytery, I want to thank you. We are a fairly small presbytery with many small churches. And it is due to your generosity in time, talents, and in volunteering that many of our smaller churches are able to function in our connection system. And I want to thank you for that. It has truly been a blessing for many churches, Presbyterian churches in the area. I also want to thank you for being a leader in following the CDC COVID guidelines during this most difficult year to year and a half. Um, you indeed have been a leader in helping others to see how to do it properly so that we can all stay healthy and that we can take care of our brothers and sisters as well by doing so. So thank you again for your leadership. Let us pray. O most gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I want to begin with a question this morning. How much water does it take to wash away sins? How much water does it take? The answer? It takes a river. At least that's how much it takes in India, according to an Associated Press news release. Listen to how this article begins. Allahabad, India. Millions of Hindus plunged into the icy Ganges River, hoping to wash away their sins at the opening of a festival that falls every 12 years. Pratap Gar, a teacher, was quoted as saying, I have come here to get a new life, to wash away the sins that I have committed over the past few years. As many as 65 million people were dipped into the frigid, rigid, frigid river's waters for a holy bath during the last 43-day celebration. So in India, it takes a river for 65 million. In Israel, in Jesus' day, it took considerably less. The ritual of purification was strictly regulated by the Torah. The Torah declared that one needed to get clean by ritual cleansing in order to get close to God and worship. It specifies that about a cup of water was all that was necessary to purify over 100 people. One cup of water per 100 plus people. I want you to hold that thought. I'm going to segue to our text 
and then come back to it a little later. When we think about the story of Jesus and at the wedding in Cana, our first and sometimes only thought is miracle. Miracle. The story is about a miracle, a time when Jesus defies the natural order of the universe, transcends natural science, and turns water into wine. But what Jesus did was more than a miracle. It was a sign. That's what John calls it. He calls it a sign. A miracle is simply the reversal of a natural process. In the Gospel of John, Jesus performs signs. And a sign is something that points beyond itself to something else. It transcends the meaning of what is visible, and it anticipates something to come in the future. For instance, if you are driving down I-95, and you see a blue light flashing in your car's rearview mirror, you don't calmly think, oh, there is a state patrolman behind me. <laughs> no, you check your speedometer, you slow down from 80 miles per hour, you prepare to stop, and you anticipate something that is coming in the future, and you unfortunately know what that something is. That flashing blue light is a sign of things to come. Turning water into wine is more than a story about a miracle. It is a sign that is laden with meaning. It anticipates and says something about what is coming in the future. Today we read about the first of a series of signs in John's Gospel. Listen again to how this story unfolds. I love it. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee when they run out of wine. Poor planning on someone's part. And Jesus' does, Jesus's mother does what any good mother would do. She says, go, go do something about it. Possibly she thought he would run to the nearest vineyard, grab a few more bottles. But no, he pulls a fast one. He turns water into wine. And the servants take the wine to the steward of the feast for the steward's approval. Now, here's where I have to confess to you that I know next to nothing about wine. I am not a winoisseur or a connoisseur of wine. I could not tell a 1954 bottle of Dom Perignon from a 2019 Gallo from a bottle of two buckchuck. All taste about the same to me. However, I did learn a bit in preparation for this sermon today from a site called Vini Vidi Vino, which means I came, I saw, I had some wine. And I highly recommend this site if you want to learn the etiquette of wine tasting and how to tell if a bottle is fruity, nutty, corky, or austere, short, and foxy. In any case, the steward of the wedding, no doubt, sniffed the cork, poured a little in a cup, 
gave it a swirl, checked again for bouquet and clarity, tasted it and said, now that's a fine bottle of wine, or words to that effect. Actually, his words were more like, most people serve the vintage wine first, and then when the people have had a lot to drink and have gotten drunk and are not able to notice the difference, they serve the jug. But you, you have kept the good stuff until the end. Now, here's what keeps this little vignette, or as I like to say, vinoyette, from simply being a miracle. It's not the transformation of the water into wine. It's the nature of the water itself. Jesus doesn't run to the local community well and haul up a few buckets of water. No, he takes the water that was meant for the purification ritual at the wedding. Now, this is more than a couple of bottles. It's six stone water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. When I reread this passage, I thought, that's crazy. Friends, that's equivalent to 120 to 180 gallons of wine. What a party! <laughs> I mean, that's a bit excessive. You've got to admit, that's a bit excessive in anyone's book. Anyone's book, except for God's book. You may recall in the Bible, anytime God does something to provide for God's people, God does it in excess. God gives way too much. Remember, when the Jews were coming out of captivity in Egypt, they were wandering hungry in the wilderness. How much does God give them to eat in the book of Numbers? God sent a huge number of quail, up to 100 bushels of quail for each person. In Matthew, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and feeds over 5,000 people, and he has 12 bushels of food left over. And there are two counts of excess fishing in the Gospels. In both incidents, the disciples are skunked. skunked. They hadn't caught a thing. They fished with no luck. So Jesus tells them, never mind what's happened before, try again. In one case, they brought up so many fish that the boat began to sink. In the other case, the net was so heavy they couldn't lift it into the boat, so they had to walk it to the shore. So with that in the background, what are we, what are we to make of this story about excess wine? I think there are at least two points that our gospel writer was trying to make by including this story as the first act in Jesus' earthly ministry. The first point that John makes is in the details. John tells us something that we're likely to miss if we simply focus on the miraculous water-to-wine transformation. The detail is that this is the water used for Hebrew rites of purification. Part of it's being a sign the thing that points to the future is the fact that Jesus overturns a system with purification at its center. An elaborate system 
have been developed over the centuries. Some things were named pure and others were named impure. Women were impure after seven, for seven days after the birth of a son, 14 days after the birth of a daughter. Dead bodies were impure. Certain foods were unclean. Blemishes or leprosy and diseases were impure. And almost anything sexual was called impure. And the list was long. It went on and on and on with this purity system. The New Testament scholar Marcus Borg in his book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, talks about Jesus' confrontation with this vast purity system. He says, the effect of the purity system was to create a world with sharp social boundaries between pure and impure, righteous and sinner, whole and not whole, male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. Changing the water into wine was not primarily a way to spice up a wedding or a party. It was, it was an act of transformation, a breaking down of boundaries, social, political, religious, a different way of seeing the world and God's presence in it. God was no respecter and is no respecter of human boundaries, prejudices, and preferences as specified by the rights of purity or any other rights for that matter. Jesus was there and is here for everyone. The second point made by our gospel writer had to do with excess and quantity. Remember that cup of water that it took to purify 100 people, according to the Torah? 120 to 180 gallons was figuratively enough holy water to purify the entire world. The reporting of the outsized acts of God, of the excessive generosity of wine, quail, fish, is not just primitive exaggeration. It is a graphic way of saying something about God which is totally beyond measure. A number of years ago, there was a celebration for the blessing of animals. And this blessing was, at this time, was held in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. It's an annual occurrence with the usual participants being a few dogs and cats, parakeets and gerbils, ferrets and turtles, pets that are fit for life in the Big Apple. But according to Bishop Paul Moore, this particular year was very, was very different. A circus must, must have been in the area because into that cathedral on that Sunday walked an elephant up to the font. Well, an elephant in the cathedral, the bishop did not flinch, the bishop did not miss a beat. If Jesus could provide 180 gallons of wine for a wedding, God and God could send 100 bushels of quail for each person in the wilderness, surely God could bless an elephant in a cathedral. 
You see, the whole world is in God's hands. And God's hands are definitely big enough for elephants. And that's the point. God's grace, God's generosity, God's mercy through Jesus Christ is to be unlimited. More than enough water for purification. More than enough wine for the wedding. Love overflowing. Love extravagant. You might say that this first miracle, this first sign in the Gospel of John contains within it the very heart of the Gospel. God's love through Christ is for the world. It knows no bounds. It has no limits. His purification, his justification is for all. And there is more than enough grace to be passed around. And yet, and yet, we appear to live in a world full of stingy grace and empty bottles of wine. Only enough grace for our tribe, our sexual orientation, our race or ethnicity, our side of the border, our social class, our political leanings, our religious beliefs. And this stingy grace, unfortunately, blends over into our families and the lives of our individual families, where sides are taken and relationships strained. And I'm sure you've seen some of this. The sign of more than enough wine is truly a challenge for you and for me. It's a challenge to live our lives in Christ in such a way that grace abounds. And it abounds even when lines are drawn in the sand and those on the other side might wish us harm. Even when lines are drawn on the sand and those on the other side might wish us harm. My hope and prayer for you this day is that God may grant you more than enough wine, more than enough grace to pass around to all that you meet, wherever you meet them, no matter which side of the line they may be on. Amen.